Hey everybody, this is Charles Haynes. On today's show, DJI comes back against GoPro. A little bit of news on Blackmagic releasing its Beta 2. And a Hey Professor. All that and a little bit more on the Weekend Film Tech for May 16th, 2019. Alright everybody, so our top story today is... DJI strikes back... At GoPro, which makes DJI sound like the evil empire in this Star Wars analogy. So maybe that's not the headline. Maybe, what do they say? They say the best revenge is a well-lived life, and let's hope in this case the best revenge is a well-built camera. So, a little backstory. DJI, super dominant in drones and stabilizers. That is their bread and butter. If you've flown a drone in the last decade, there's like a 90% chance it's DJI. If you've seen drone shots in a movie, there's like a 95% chance it's DJI. They're super dominant in that space. They're also pretty dominant in stabilizers. They have the Ronin 2, which is very popular. Uh, but obviously, they don't own that space. There's a lot of competition from like Movi and Moza and, you know, Tilta, a lot of other competition. But drones, they own. GoPro owned the action camera space for a very long time. As some other competitors started to move in on that space, they wanted to go up into the sky to keep growing their market, so they came out with the Karma drone, which fell out of the sky. And that's no good. It is always a bad thing when your drones are falling from the sky. There is a video online of a Karma falling from the sky and landing near a human being on the ground. And it's a video because the Karma shooting video, when you watch the whole thing falling and tumbling and landing near someone, it's terrifying. As far as we know, I don't think anyone was actually hurt from these Karma drones falling from the sky, but they have eventually GoPro pulled out of drones altogether. They're back to action cams. And what's really interesting is GoPro was sort of getting getting its feet again. They struggled for a bit, but now with the Hero 7 Black, we've uh, been seeing GoPro sort of like get back their groove, and I think they just had their first quarter of profitability in a year. So like GoPro was was on stable footing, which is when DJI released an action camera. Yesterday, they released the Osmo Action. There's a lot of reasons for DJI to release an action camera. I don't think this is 100% pure revenge on GoPro going for the skies. It makes a lot of sense for them, but it's also kind of delicious. Uh, in a competitive business sense. So why is it so smart that DJI is releasing an action cam? Well, DJI has a lot of expertise in small imagers, right? Those It's almost always small sensors up there in the sky flying on those uh, drones. So they're very good at getting good images out of small sensors. They have a lot of really good technology in image stabilization. They've been doing three-axis stabilization for drones and ground stabilizers for a decade. In-camera image stabilization, working with external stabilization, those two working together is something where they have a whole lot of expertise and stabilization is a big killer feature in those action cams, right? Because they're small, so they bounce around a lot, right? Image stabilization isn't as big a deal with a heavy camera where there's inertia, but that small camera that bounces around like crazy, you really want something in that small camera space that gives you a lot more uh, flexibility and image stabilization in the body. So that's why it makes a lot of sense for DJI to have done this, to come out with the Osmo Action. What makes it super exciting, so there's a feature built into this camera. First off, it mostly sort of hits the Hero 7 feature for feature. It's 4K, it does 60p, it can do slow-mo, 100 megabits a second. It's DJI. If the Mavic 2 is any indication, you're going to get some really nice, pleasing images out of this. So that is all super great. But what makes it exciting compared to the Hero 7 Black? Well, there's a feature that they built into this. This happens a lot in the film industry, where they build a feature for one thing, like Canon 5D Mark II releasing its video feature, and they thought it would be used mostly by, like, journalists for little, like, quick vid video memos. But then it was so nice. Filmmakers loved it, right? Filmmakers are often finding a thing and then using it for something else. 
They released a feature in the uh, Osmo Action, which is clearly for YouTubers. But I think filmmakers are going to love it. Not that YouTube and YouTubers and filmmakers are that different, but specifically they released a selfie-driven feature, which is there is a on the front of the Osmo Action. There's a screen, so the lens can be facing you, and you can see what you are framing. Obviously, this is really targeted at like a vlogger YouTuber kind of space where people want to be able to see themselves and all of that kind of stuff. They're talking to the camera. You know, you're out there on your mountain bike. It's on your handlebars. You can see your frame. You look down the mountain bike, and you're like, watch me do this cool stunt. And then you do the cool stunt. I mountain bike, so I am allowed to make fun of people who mountain bike. Uh, although I haven't mountain biked in a couple of years, so maybe I'm no longer allowed to mock them. Regardless, that is clearly the intention of that feature. But I'm super excited about it, and this actually like is the clear winner in the action camera space for me, because as a filmmaker, when I am using an action camera, I'm almost always using it as part of a package in a scene, and it is adding something, and it's usually rigged in a weird place. So, for instance, I was working on book trailer for Rich Roll, who's a triathlete, and, uh, you know, most of it was shot red. I don't remember what camera it was at the time, Red MX, Cinema Primes. But, you know, triathlete, swims underwater, so we went to his pool, and we got all this stuff of him diving in and all this beautiful stuff, but we wanted underwater stuff. So we, you know, the first AC had a bunch of GoPros. We uh, would swim underwater. We'd rig them up on the walls using suction cups. But the problem with the GoPro is I can see the lens, and the image is on the back of the camera. And when I'm rigging that underwater, it's really tough to see what my frame is, which is super annoying. So you'd, like, go down, rig it, you'd go up. If you were lucky enough to have the whole wireless system set up where you can look at the image on an iPad, you'd check your frame, you'd go back down. But it's not, like, an ideal workflow. And, like, a lot of times, like, if I'm underwater, I can't look at an iPad. Let's say I'm up on a ladder, I'm trying to rig a GoPro to a weird spot in the ceiling. Or, like, rigging GoPros inside cars for action stuff. It was always sort of a hiccupy situation. The front-facing screen is ideal for this. Because then, I can have it up there. And I can, like, see what it's framing, and I, like, get myself out of the way, and I, like, tweak it however I'm rigging it for a camera that you are ideally rigging in these weird spots where it's tricky and complicated and hiccupy. The ability to have a front-facing screen is just... It's one of those things that as soon as you see it, you're like, whoa, DJI, yes, that is the feature I need in this. Why didn't GoPro do this, like, four generations ago? Yeah, I mean, look, I think we can all assume the GoPro 8 will have a front-facing screen. I think that's, like, a logical assumption at this point. But not even having, like, a black-and-white front-facing framing image on the GoPro 5 or something is kind of shocking once you see it. Because you're like, oh, yeah, this is exactly what I want from this. I want something where I'm able to see the frame from multiple positions. So, DJI is out with uh, the new Osmo Action 4K 60p, 100 megabits per second. Uh, you can buy it right now on DJI, and I think in a week you can buy it from everybody else. It's like under 400 bucks. Um, there's some footage already out there on the YouTubes. Yeah, so I'm super excited to start seeing more footage as filmmakers start integrating this into their package. A decade now, filmmakers have always had like a GoPro in their bag or something that you can just throw up when you need it. And I think with that front-facing camera, you're going to start to see a lot more filmmakers have it be the Osmo Action just because it's going to be easier for them to rig really quickly with less hurdles. Yeah, sweet move, DJI. I'm looking forward to the return move from GoPro. Up next, number two story of the week is Beta 2 is out from DaVinci for Blackmagic Resolve Beta 2. Now, why is this news? Well, so I almost never install a Beta 1. Beta software, if you've never used Beta software before, Beta software is software that is released by a company that is basically saying everybody out here should play with this and learn from it and... You know, it's like free testing for them because they get all of your feedback and whatnot. And beta 2 is the one you want to start with. Or beta 3 or beta 4. Beta 1 is usually super buggy. I mean, there are exceptions, I'm sure. Somebody in the comments or on Twitter is going to be like, no, but this one software, beta 1, was great. I usually wait for beta 2. But 
This particular one, I think this is now a good time to start playing with this stuff. Personally, the thing I'm really excited about exploring is all the machine learning tools for footage analysis. Like one of the more boring parts of working on a lot of projects is breaking down all the footage. And the fact that this one will scan through all of your footage for you, look at everything you shot, identify faces, give you the opportunity to name those faces and then sort those into bins is like a very particularly exciting thing. And I think we should all be super excited to start playing with beta two. The last piece of news for the this week. Uh, and But don't forget, we got a Hey Professor after that. The last piece of news for this week is Tilta has started shipping their Nucleus Nano. Well, what's the Nucleus Nano? It's a $300 follow focus. And normally, man, this is like the affordable episode. I gotta say, normally I'm not that excited about a $300 follow focus because until really recently, $300 follow focus just meant it didn't work, right? It was always so laggy and it was always so like... There was so much lag and so much slop, and then the radio didn't connect a lot of, like, cheap follow focuses were, like, totally shot ruiners. I haven't spent time with the Tilta Nano, but I have spent some time with the Nucleus M, which is, like, their $1,200 multi-axis thing, and it's good. It's, like, well-built, and it works, and Tilta, I mean, Tilta, if you don't know them, they're, um, they have an office in LA, but they're a Southeast Asian company, and they make all sorts of stuff. They make gimbals, the gravity gimbal. They make like big overhead, you know, like uh, holding systems for your gimbals. They do all sorts of stuff. And the Tilted Nucleus M, they're like $1,200 option, which is still like screamingly affordable. It was really smart because it was designed so you'd have like the two handles. And it could be like if you were in a shoulder mount rig, you'd have the two handles. Or if you were like holding a gimbal, you'd have the two handles. And the two handles had like all of your like follow focus controllers on them. And it was super useful. And what's interesting is it's a $1,200 rig, but you've started to see them some places. You've started to see them on, like, nice camera setups because they work. Not perfect. Are you still going to get more function out of, like, a Bartek or a Preston or a C-Motion or the ones made by Aerie? Totally. But those are all way more expensive, and it's always those have always felt like rental items to me. I was never going to own any of those because I wasn't a full-time working AC or Steadicam up, the other people who tend to own follow focuses. But with the Nucleus M, we started to see, like, oh, affordable and not garbage. So that's why I'm really excited about the Nucleus Nano. Now, Nucleus Nano is designed mostly for working on their Gravity G2X stabilizer, but they also make adapters. You can mount it to other cameras. If you're mounting it to a cage, there's all of that stuff. So there's a variety of things. It's a single axis stabilizer, uh, single axis follow focus. So this isn't something that you're then like, okay, now I'm going to expand it over time and I'm eventually going to hook it up to other cameras and all the, no, this is follow focus. You're never going to get iris and zoom out of it. If you want to do that, if you want an expandable system, look at something like the Nucleus M or a billion other options. But if all you need is follow focus for gimbal work or, you know, any kind of thing like that, Tilta coming out at something at this price point is particularly impressive. And I'm very excited to get my hands on it uh, because Tilta has done a really good job of these things in the past. Um, so the fact that it is now shipping and that you're starting to see some reports about it online is very cool. And I'm really excited to see how it is out in the field. And if any of you have bought it and have some thoughts and experience, let me know on the Twitter at Charles Hain. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Next section. Hey, Professor. Our Hey, Professor question this week came to us on Twitter. Twitter user Brandon with Tail asks, Hey, you mentioned you like a couple cinematography books. What are they? That's a really good question. I don't actually remember when I mentioned it, but here are the two cinematography books I really like. Uh, there's the Mankiewicz books. There's the Harry Box lighting books. There's all sorts of great books. But there's two that really stand out that I teach from all the time. 
and they are both by people whose initials are BB, Blaine Brown and Bruce Block. Let's start with the Blaine Brown because its title is easy to remember. It's called Cinematography. It is from Focal Press. Full disclosure, I'm also doing a book with Focal Press, but I was teaching out of this book 10 years ago before I'd met anyone from Focal Press. Here's what I love about Blaine Brown's Cinematography. It is a book that covers technical stuff. There's cameras and there's exposure and there's latitude and there's lighting and there's all that technical stuff you need to know. But it's also a book that talks about aesthetics, that talks about framing, that talks about shot design, that talks about storytelling. And that's one of my biggest problems with a lot of cinematography books is it is not only does it require a lot of updating to write a cinematography book that's just technical, right? Because obviously every two or three years, all the technical things have changed. I mean, probably not from 1970 to 1980, but from 2010 to 2020, that is a big change in what we use to shoot movies from the Alexa being a brand new thing that nobody had worked with yet to Alexa being dominant from uh, no LED lights to a lot of LED lights, all these changes. Blaine Brown's book is really useful and has legs because there's some technical stuff in there. And there's even a point where he's like, at least in the second edition, the new digital Viper, which is like a camera that only people used for like a year. As far as I know, the only person who ever shot with it was Michael Mann. So there's stuff that's dated in it. I'm sure there's an edition three that I just haven't gotten around to buying yet. But he talks about story and he talks about image and he talks about aesthetics. And that's really important with cinematography because cinematography isn't just tools, right? This shows that we can film tech because it's fun to talk about gear and the tools and the toys we use to make images. But it's what the images we're trying to create. It's about using those images to tell a story. And he talks about that. Now, on top of that, there's a book called The Visual Story that I think everybody who wants to be a cinematographer should read. Uh, Bruce Block, uh, I had him as a professor when I was at USC. Uh, he's been teaching at USC forever. I don't know if he's still there. He's great. And he has an entire book on The Visual Story, which is about uh, the way in which you organize and structure your images for visual storytelling. Production designers should read it. Directors should read it. And every cinematographer should read it because it's just story. There's like one appendix at the end on some very obscure technical stuff that I'm always I'm always kind of surprised it's there. I don't know necessarily why some of it's there. I don't think it's actually that relevant to what he's talking about because what he's talking about is the way in which we structure a story. What images do you want to start with? What images do you want to end with? What journey are you taking people on with the images? How are you controlling the images? All of that stuff. And that's a really huge part of cinematography. And yes, it's great to read Set Lighting with Harry Box. I love that book. I reference it. It's useful. It's part of the library. And if you want to be a gaffer, you should read the Harry Box book. But Bruce Block's The Visual Story is such a great underlying guide to like, let's look at images. Let's talk about how they work, how they tell a story, what they do, and how we structure it. So for Hey Professor this week, the professor, which in this case is me, has two recommendations. Blaine Brown and the Bruce Block books on uh, cinematography. I think they are both out of focal press. All right, so this has been another week in the week in film tech. This has been Charles Hain for May 16th, 2019. I will see everybody next week. Music.